You're listening to Pod Suey, the week's top stories served a la carte. Subscribe at thegreatvoice.com or wherever you get your podcasts. President Biden announced $10,000 in student loan relief for millions of borrowers on Wednesday, as well as an extension on the repayment freeze until the end of 2022. Democratic Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, running in the 6th District, weighs in on it on All Talk with Tom Jordan and Kevin Dietz. But some unhappy campers would include a few different categories, different types of people. First, those who make more than 125000 a year and still have some student debt, yeah, they've got to pay it back. Why are they being left out of this? And then those who say, hey, wait a second here, Mr. President, I thought you were going to forgive all of my debt. What do you mean I have to pay some of it back? They're not, they're not happy either, Kevin, not to mention the millions of other Americans who now have to foot the bill for other people's college education. Yeah, I imagine a lot of young people who went to college are happy right now if they have debt, and a lot of blue-collar workers who did not go to college and are going to pay the debt are, are not happy. The Biden administration says it is taking steps to make the student loan system more manageable for future borrowers, and this is interesting. They say they're going to do this by capping monthly payments at 5% of borrowers' monthly income and forgive loan balances after 10 years of payments for borrowers with loan balances of $12,000 or less, among other measures. The president said, my plan is responsible and fair. It focuses the benefit on the middle class and working families. It helps both current and future borrowers, and it will fix a badly broken system. Joining us now is Debbie Dingle, Congresswoman from the 12th District. Good morning. How are you? Good morning, guys. It is always wonderful to talk to you. Yeah, I appreciate it. We appreciate you coming on. We really do. What do you like about the president's student loan forgiveness uh, program? You know, look, I think the way that you even introduced the subject shows that it's a very complicated discussion. And, you know, there are many issues. Obviously, there are some happy even who have been feeling very scared by the amount of money that they own on the student debt. The interest rates have been very high. Uh, it's been preventing them from buying homes or doing some of the other things, putting off having children. And it's a down payment, or it will make, and it's only being given to people in a certain economic income. But I honestly don't think it totally addresses the problem that we've got. I do think that, first of all, we've got to change our outlook on post secondary education. And I'll tell you, in this day and age, I think a plumber, an electrician, and a pipe fitter have equal, or quite frankly, in my mind, a lot more value than a lawyer does. And we need to make sure that we're training kids in those trades and they have access to it, et cetera, and we need to be looking at that. But we also, you know, if you compare and you talk to, if you look at Tennessee, Republican governor, they're making the two-year college free to anybody. Germany has done that. Many European countries have done that. I wish that hard issues, people just didn't break down into partisan bickering and didn't sit at the table and try to figure out what we have to do. We've got a shortage of psychiatrists, a shortage of doctors, public service. We should be incentivizing and perhaps if we paid for people's tuition and then they gave back a certain amount of time to public service, that would be a better way. You know, we need to increase access to Pell Grants. So... I, I the president did this because he made a promise and he is helping some people that need help. But it's not an answer to the problem in any way, shape or form. People do have these funds to reduce the uh, amount of uh, the percentage rate that they're paying on the loan. Uh, but we got a lot more work to do. And I wish 
we could make this non-political, but could really sit at a table and say, how do we make sure that we train our young people to have the skill sets we need for the future, which we need to understand is a broad set, and how do we make it affordable for everybody? And it's complicated. Do you think Congress should have a... A, a responsibility or a role in holding universities accountable on reducing costs, or should the free market just decide that if they're too expensive, people should just say, I'm not going to go? You know, it's complicated. I served on the Wayne State Board uh, and remembered that it's really the federal government is doing Pell Grants and doing some support, but it's really being decided at the state legislative area. And where does the state put a priority on what kind of funding that's given to the school? It keeps getting cut. One of the reasons the tuition is going up. But I do think we need to look at where the universities are spending the money, their overhead. Uh, you know, who should, a lot of money that's going to these. We need research. We need to invest in research. A lot of good work goes on in these universities. But I don't think students' tuition should cover the research that's being done at these universities. It sh- they should not. Pay the price. Pay the price. I, they're paying the price for going to a good school and having good teachers. I think academic. I'll tell you something. Point blank. I think academia and the university world is more political than any institution I have been associated with. I agree with you, but but it's now uh, they're they're expensive. These universities far too expensive. But now it's not the students who are paying for it now. It's now taxpayers. The universities are still going to get the money. But now, based on this decision, at least $300 billion are going to be coming from taxpayers who are not responsible for these loans. Why doing this? Why, why is this um, such a blanket loan forgiveness? Why not have it to say, hey, there's some people that are struggling financially. Let's make them prove it through some type of application process and help those who truly need it. Otherwise, it's just everybody who has a student loan making less than one twenty-five a year suddenly get their loans forgiven. Well, that's the structure that was there because that's what it was determined was the, was the income level that needed the most help because those that have a higher income level are not getting it. And, you know, it's it, we as taxpayers are also paying for the money that goes into support of public education in our universities. And I do think education is a legitimate public good. But then where's the accountability on how our money is being spent at, at these public universities? And I think that's a very complicated subject. And having sat on a university board and was not the favorite of the administration, I think they're fair and legitimate questions that need I, I don't know if everybody under I don't know if everybody needs it under that. If if I'm 25 years old and I just got my Juris Doctorate and I'm making right now $85,000 a year, I qualify for this loan forgiveness. Even though in 10 years from now I might maybe be making $400,000 based on my education. So why not tailor it more specifically to truly low income people who don't have the future? That someone that just got their master's or a Juris Doctorate just received. You know, I suspect it was very complicated in determining what this formula may be. There are a lot of doctors that have just gotten a medical degree and their debt is staggering. It's two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars And they made this decision that this was the income level that where the cutoff should be and it's where the group needed the most help. It was not part of 
how they figured out that formula. I know it brought I mean, I was on the campus at U of M yesterday, and a lot of kids were like, we needed this. You don't know how scared we were. But I also see the other side, and I know that the system is broken, and we've got to look at this differently. A yeah. lot differently. A lot differently. Well, I hope it does go to Congress, and it's not just made by this executive decision by the uh, lone individual in the Oval Office. I think this should be done by the people if we're going to make such a drastic and major decision like this. We appreciate you coming on, as always. Congresswoman Debbie Dingell from the 12th District. Thank you, Congresswoman. Appreciate it. Congressman Bill Huizinga, running for re-election in the 4th District, gives a Republican response to Tom and Kevin. Well, this is getting a lot of pushback from both Republicans and Democrats. There's, of course, the fairness issue. Uh, The issue also of hundreds of billions of dollars of new taxpayer burden, but also the legitimacy of this entire plan. Does Biden have any right to do this? Can he single-handedly decide that you, me, and all other taxpayers have to suddenly pay for other people's college loans, that we have to pay back other people's debt? Well, Kevin, even Nancy Pelosi, the uh, Speaker of the House, says, nope, this is exclusively a decision for the American people's representatives in Congress. Yeah, Tom, up until now, the legal opinion was that only Congress can forgive debt like this, that the Secretary of Education does not have the constitutional authority to wipe out hundreds of billions of dollars in student loans. But with progressives adamant that $50,000 should be forgiven and Joe Biden stuck on the number 10000 a fight in the Senate was sure to put a halt to this historic spending if they had gone through Congress. So the president is having the Secretary of Education go it alone and wipe out the $10,000 in debt for millions of borrowers, citing the HEROES Act passed after 9-11 as giving them expanded powers to wipe out the debt. Joining us now is Bill Hazinga, congressman from the 2nd District. Good morning, Bill. How are you? Hey, good to be with you guys. And uh, yeah, pretty extraordinary uh, that uh, that this administration, once again, is figuring out that they can't get done what they want to do legislatively. So they're just going to go do a, quote, uh, extra executive route, uh, meaning break the Constitution. But, you know, hey, here we are. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I, I didn't look that deeply into the HEROES Act. Uh, is it a legal loophole to the Constitution? Do you believe that uh, the the Secretary of Education has the authority to do this? Well, the, 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 the point is, is that uh, that they are going around the normal legislative constitutional process. Right. And and they're leaning into this uh, as uh, part of the pandemic and the emergency of the pandemic. And that is what they're hanging their hat on as to why they would have authority to do this. Um, it's it, look, it's it's it, it's like HUD declaring uh, that uh, uh, or I'm sorry, not even HUD, uh, uh, but CDC declaring that um, nobody has to pay their rent. Right. Uh, the, the, the fact that you've got these other institutions declaring things can or must or should or can't happen in the private sector uh, is uh, is wildly inappropriate. So even uh, a lot of Democrats say this is not the right move. Former Obama economic advisor Jason Furman, he said that the White House is trying to use these sympathetic examples of who's going to benefit from this, like these you know, a married nurse making 77000 a year, or a construction worker making thirty-eight k. So this Obama advisor then asks, well, if that's the case, 
if this is going to those types of people who are uh, lower income and hardworking and necessary careers, if that's who's benefiting from this, why is this loan forgiveness geared for couples making up to $250,000 a year in salary? Why are law school students included yeah. in this loan forgiveness plan? <laughs> well, you are asking the right questions, and they don't have the answers to those questions because uh, that's exactly right. Thirty percent of the uh, of the country uh, goes to college and has uh, has college loans like that. By the way, my family's in construction. Uh, I talk to construction guys all the time. They are not happy about this. They don't feel like they're getting uh, the, uh, the the benefit from this. In fact, they feel like they're getting the sharp end of the stick uh, when it comes to their tax dollars uh, being used uh, to go bail out their accountants and their lawyers that they have to hire to go run their small business. So, uh, and they know how much they pay all those folks. So, this is it's just. It's a justification uh, for something that this uh, administration said they wanted to do. They can't get it done legislatively, so they're just taking this extra uh, executive route. Can anyone challenge this constitutionally? Uh, Can anyone sue to stop this, or is this a done deal? No, I don't think it's a done deal yet, and and certainly uh, everyone has to uh, has to assess sort of the the route that they are using and how they are using whether it's this Heroes Act or uh, whatever other route that they're going to be having. So I imagine that there will be some lawsuits on this, and there should be, frankly. So the, looking at the cost of this and how it's going to be paid for, the lower estimate on this is that it's going to cost $300 billion. Upwards is closer to $900 billion. So, so that's more than the recent tax and spending bill that just passed costs. Uh, the White House is, is not saying that taxes are going to be raised, or they're not saying it's, they're not going to be raised. They're not saying anything about that to pay for this. You're in Congress. Uh, what are you and your colleagues surmising is going to the, be the case here? Are taxes going to go up? Uh, well, certainly that is uh, the the plan of this administration. Uh, they uh, they want taxes to go up. They believe that uh, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which delivered true middle class tax relief uh, in the last administration, uh, that that needs to go away. And uh, but here's the dirty little secret: in addition to raising taxes, um, they're just printing it. Right. Right. I mean, we all know that that's that's the real problem. Uh, The debt that we are accruing is just massive. Thirty trillion dollars, 12 zeros behind that. And and that's really where they're going to go get this. And uh, and that makes a bad situation even worse. So, um, yeah, we are uh, we are in a strange, strange time right now uh, when uh, when we think that we're going to be able to spend our way out of uh, out of inflation. And uh, and virtually every economist uh, worth their salt is looking at this. And and again, as you pointed out, even Obama uh, era uh, economic advisors, who, by the way, now have real jobs in the private sector and have to go justify and make sure that folks that hire them know that they're playing this on the up and up. uh, They're even saying that this is uh, this is foolish. It's uh, it's wrongheaded. And it's going to do nothing but uh, add uh, fuel to the inflationary fires. The real problem, in my opinion, is the rising cost of college. And no one's done anything to put a halt to it. And no one's done anything in three decades or four decades. Is anyone going to address that or work on that anytime soon? 
Yeah, if you look at what uh, Virginia Fox, who, by the way, is uh, uh, a Ph.D. herself and has been involved in education. She's from uh, North Carolina, my Republican colleague from uh, from North Carolina. Uh, She and a number of others who have been involved in the uh, education sphere. Their, for their careers before they came into Congress, uh, they very much have uh, plans how to do that. Uh, but it goes against and is counter to what the the norm and the narrative is these days, uh, which is uh, which is universities, colleges have to grow their administration. They have to provide all of these services. Oh, by the way, the simple fact that uh, that the federal government has now taken over all of the uh, the loan programs, they and that they under the Obama administration they uh, uh, they ruled out any private sector uh, college loans. That removes all of the pressure that uh, consumers would bring to that, saying, "Hey, am I really getting a bang for my buck here? Uh, maybe I should go to a community college and knock out some of my uh, my uh, prerequisites and those kinds of things." Right? All of that pressure is gone, and and this is going to do nothing but uh, a allow and give breathing space to these colleges and universities to keep their costs up where they're at. I should know. I've got three in college right now. Mm, yeah. uh, this is uh, this is I'm, I'm paying I'm, or helping pay. The kids are uh, the kids are paying uh, their their summer jobs are pouring into their college education. Yep. We're helping out. Uh, but uh, this is it's completely out of control. I'm in the same boat as you are. And now the Manhattan Institute says this is actually going to raise tuition even further. We appreciate your perspective uh, very much. Bill Heisinga, the congressman from the 2nd District. Congressman, great to speak with you. Thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Abortion rights will be on November's ballot after the State Bureau of Elections confirmed the initiative garnered enough signatures. Senior news analyst Chris Renwick breaks it down on Guy Gordon. Uh, you know what? We're going to be busy when we go into the ballot box come November. Not only do we have the, the run-of-the-mill midterm election statewide offices to fill, Governor, Secretary of State, and Attorney General, but we're also going to have now not one but three ballot questions, and it can grow even larger. And ballot questions two and three basically announced uh, yesterday are passing an important step. They haven't crossed the finish line yet, but we wanted to let you know about that. WJR Senior News Analyst Chris Renwick joining us with this important step in that ballot proposal process. Chris? Good afternoon, Guy. State election officials have recommended the certification of a proposed constitutional amendment to lock abortion rights into the Michigan Constitution. That recommendation comes from the State Elections Bureau. Then it stems from samples taken over 750,000 signatures, which is a record, and shows that about 596,000 are valid which is certainly over the 146,000 that is needed. The State Board of Canvassers approved language from the Reproductive Freedom for All and Promote the Vote 2022 petition efforts last week. The decision from the election officials circumvents an anti-abortion group's challenge that claims the measure can't go to the ballot because of a lack of spaces between words. The challenging group, Citizens for Support My Women and Children, contested the proposal's petition, saying spacing issues had caused words to be joined together in error, resulting in, quote, a string of gibberish. Reproductive Freedom for All provided an affidavit from the printer of the petition, saying the spaces were included in the full text of the proposed constitutional amendment, according 
to the Bureau of Elections. One thing that the Bureau made no recommendation on is the merits of legal arguments about the petition's word spacing, saying the Michigan election law is silent on the amount of space that must be between letters and words in a petition. That's according to their report. And Guy, another recommendation the Bureau made in certifying the Promote the Vote 2022's petition initiative to change Michigan's voting rules to allow for nine days of early in-person voting to ensure ballot drop boxes are in each community and to require the state to pay for absentee ballot postage, which, again, will should be on the ballot come November 8th. Uh, interesting that the, the Bureau of Elections has remained silent. Uh, and there's a legal challenge against the uh, Voting Rights Act mm-hmm. as well. So uh, still a lot of water yet to go under the bridge before these things will actually be inked onto a ballot. But that comes up, I think, is it next Wednesday? It's yes, August next 31st week. Yep. When, the, when the Board of Canvassers meets. Uh, is safe to say that even after the Board of Canvassers that this is likely facing a court challenge both? Certainly will face a court challenge. There's no doubt about that. But um, when you when you're talking about the number of signatures needed, they certainly got the number. And and yeah. even of some of the, the the samples that were taken that were invalidated, they, they they absolutely had well well over what was needed. So they've got that big hurdle jumped through. Now, it, what other legal challenges awaits is yet to be seen. Well, and that hurdle was much higher than it has been in past years because we saw what happened to Perry Johnson and James Craig and three other gubernatorial candidates on the GOP side. But we should point out, and you make a really good point there, which is the level of petition signatures that they had is directly attributable to the level of volunteers they had. Mm-hmm. And because they had so many volunteers, they didn't have to outsource the petition gathering part of this, right? Yeah, one of my one of our weekend spots is the Farmington Farmers Market on Saturday mornings. And y- you couldn't you couldn't access the farmers market from any point of any entrance or exit in in that particular area without finding two, three, sometimes even four petition gatherers in that that one area. So there's no doubt that they had a a huge groundswell of people on the ground uh, with the the clipboards and trying to explain to people what they were doing. But they they absolutely had an outrageous number of volunteers, which certainly attributes to the number of signatures they got. Which tells you that as we head into the campaign, if it does get on the ballot, there will be just as much passion behind that sure. ballot proposal. But we also know that Right to Life Michigan has a very, very passionate following as well. And it's going to be perhaps even more highly litigated and more highly advertised and pushed than maybe even the gubernatorial race. We'll see. Absolutely. And and one thing that I think needs to be said, you know, you look at abortion on the ballot in other states, like in Kansas, the wording of that ballot proposal was so convoluted and, and I think really kind of confused voters on what they were actually voting on when they were voting yes or no. And so I think it's really important specifically as it comes to these ballot measures and, and the, some of the onus is on the voters, us, to make sure that we're educated on what we're going to vote for before we hit the, 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 the paper. But at the same time, I think having a clear message is really important because that way you don't leave things up for interpretation for people. 
Right, because the minute you do that, it's much easier to vote no than it is to vote yes. And we've seen this time and again on ballot proposals that may have been able to have crossed the finish line, Chris, but for the fact that they got really fuzzy in the language and confusing, or they make you vote backwards where you have to vote no to vote yes, Right. right? Yep. And and so and I'll tell you, I think this language is pretty fuzzy, you know, especially when it comes to the idea of a fetal viability standard or, or if someone goes into the ballot box and say, well, I do support abortion rights, but I be the, believe there should be limits. And when it says in one clause, one thing, and then the next clause seems to negate that, you open up the interpretation so that one side can say, oh, no, we have very reasonable limits. And the other side says, you have no limits at all, and that's the battle that's already being waged. Absolutely. And again, this isn't just a law. This isn't to take away the 1931 law. This is codifying it in the Constitution. This is making exactly. a constitutional amendment. So I think if, if you're asking people to vote on this, be very, very clear what you're looking for and asking people to vote on, because this is going right into the bloodline of how our laws are made in this state. It's one where you're going to have to really work hard to educate yourself. And um, and as, as we've been discussing in the past, Chris, I know Richard Bernstein was on with Tom and mm-hmm. Kevin the other day, and he says, look, even after this passes, if it does pass, it's still going to come to us at the Supreme Court because yep. we're going to have to interpret that language. And it, what a heck of a mess that we have to interpret it after we voted on it. Correct. Right? Absolutely. It, so... Uh, it just seems, as my mother would say, bass backwards. Um, Chris, <laughs> smart thanks, lady, thanks, smart she lady, she is, she is, and colorful. <laughs> um, <laughs> Chris, thanks so much. You got it. John James, a Republican businessman, is running in the newly drawn 10th district in Macomb County. He's on All Talk, and he discusses the U.S. conducting military drills with South Korea. Hey, uh, not to freak you out at all, just a little piece of information you might might want to be aware of. Uh, North Korea might be a little more angry today at the United States than they were a couple of days ago. That freaks me out. Yeah, okay, well, (laughs) uh, there's some realism in it, actually. The nuclear power, which is North Korea and a sworn enemy of the United States, could be triggered by yesterday's military exercises from the United States and South Korea. Just another potential provocation in that region, because, of course, China is not too happy with us right now because of our interest with Taiwan. So the question for some people, Kevin, becomes, why now? Why are we launching these military drills with South Korea in an already volatile time around the world? I mean, it looks like, Kevin, North Korea may have been the real instigator here in the first place. Uh, Russia's not too happy with this either right now. True that. Uh, these drills, uh, you know, they could draw an angry response from North Korea. And, and North Korea, they've been dialing it up uh, with their weapons testing uh, this year. I think it's on a record pace. Uh, and they, they're constantly uh, threatening conflicts with Seoul and Washington. So uh, what does this mean? Why Why now? Donald Trump, uh, back in 2018, I think, said they were, they were too expensive and uh, too provocative to North Korea. And he put a stop to them, but but now they're back. Joining us now is John James, Republican nominee for the 10th Congressional District and an Army veteran. Good morning, sir. How are you? Uh, good morning. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Can you kind of set the stage for what's going on over here uh, with North Korea, South Korea, and, and our involvement there? Yeah, so folks may not uh, remember, but uh, we're still technically at war with North Korea. Uh, there was a ceasefire and amnesty, and there's a demilitarized zone between North and South Korea. Uh, so hostilities uh, can go from hot to cold at times. Now, North Korea uh, has become a nuclear power over the years. And uh, and because Kim Jong-un recognizes that that is one of the only things allowing him to hold on to his power, um, he's guarding that jealously at the at the uh, expense of his very own people. 
Um, the alliance that we have with the South Koreans, the alliances that we have with Japan and, 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 uh, and our, our friends in the region, uh, we need to maintain our, our, our alliances and trust that the Americans will be there and that we will keep our promises. And that trust was massively eroded last year, last year this time, uh, when, we, uh, when we retreated from Afghanistan. Uh, a lot of this movement in the region is to undergird or, or to, to, uh, to reassure our allies in the region that the United States will be there. But this is why we need to have veterans. This is why we need to have people with combat and with military experience in Congress, people who understand how terrible war is and will avoid unnecessary wars and will understand exactly what's going on from a global perspective to make sure that we have peace through strength and we continue our progress through denuclearization while also making sure we maintain peace, we maintain trade, but also protect our interests at home first and abroad. So the the withdrawal from Afghanistan uh, may have emboldened Russia to move on Ukraine, may have emboldened China to to move on Taiwan. Uh, is the idea here that we have to step up and show that we're we're not afraid, and so we we run these drills to send North Korea a message that we we are still America and don't mess with us. Yeah, but see, there's the thing. Uh, there's a number of ways to do it, and and military might is not the only way to show you're strong. Um, frankly, um, you should use diplomacy to to bring your opponents to the table, e- economy to bring them to their senses, and only the military is a last resort to bring them to their knees for the protection of America and its interests. A bunch of saber rattling and provocation may not necessarily achieve your objectives. In fact, it might be the exact opposite. Being tough on China and, and, our, and, our, uh, and our opponents uh, doesn't mean um, failing to do the things uh, like executing soft power, making sure that we're strong at home, making sure that we secure our borders, making sure that we have the Western Hemisphere uh, uh, under control. Because, frankly, um, that's where we've taken our eye off the ball from a foreign policy standpoint. Beijing and Moscow, um, their growing spheres of communist influence are beginning to meddle in the Western Hemisphere. And for 100 years, our oceans have protected us. Well, no more. No more with these open borders. No more with satellites and hypersonics. We need to continue to innovate. We need to make sure that we're strong at home to be the greatest deterrent. It's not going to be drills in South Korea. It's not going to be Democrat politicians trying to make themselves look better by flying to Taiwan. It's going to be making sure we invest in American society, American economy, American children's education, and make sure that we keep our Western Hemisphere safe, secure our border, and have strong alliances. Yeah, the strong alliances are, are critical. We have these coalitions, these alliances right now with, you know, clearly with South Korea, we got Australia, we got the, those people in the Indo-Pacific region, also Japan, but so does North Korea. They got their alliances too. Um, do you think it's feasible that North Korea, China, maybe other foes like Russia could form a stronger alliance against the United States? And if we were to trigger some sort of military action, that, that that would become, I mean, are we biting off more than we can chew right now? Because our military has been downgraded in recent years and we're already, you know, find ourselves in this Ukrainian Russian thing going on with China and Taiwan as well. Uh, at what point are we just too depleted? Well, you know, you bring up a great point. Um, you, you need to look at uh, what our actual aims are. American foreign policy has to address these growing spheres of communist influence, but spreading ourselves too thin, not having a, a, an objective, and not being united at home on those objectives is, is, a, is a threat itself. 
um, again, we have to stand um, for with our with our alliances. We need to make sure that uh, that our opponents respect us. And absolutely, the North Koreans, the Chinese, the Russians are going to band together. Um, and frankly, the larger issue, because under this administration, uh, uh, governments around the world have lost faith and trust in American might. Um, there are a staggering number of our allies and, and trading partners that have remained neutral. Uh, that's something when you look at what we're trying to do to keep communism at bay, uh, that is a risk as well. A perceived weakened Western world that's supposed to be led by the United States. In order to regain that that global authority, that global power, again, we need to we need to make sure that we are strong at home, that we are we are boosting our economy at home, that we're innovating at home, and that, that we have the resources to sustain um, uh, the the type of of uh, uh, of, of military deterrent that, that's necessary. Um, folks aren't necessarily as afraid uh, of the United States. And frankly, we need to get back to a world uh, where where the, the enemies and the op opponents are more afraid of the United States than we are of them. This is an administration that has shown that it will buckle under pressure from Putin and from Xi. And we need to make sure that we are strong at home first so that we can maintain peace through strength. What's the biggest threat? Because uh, you just mentioned the current administration. And we weren't seeing these types of exercises to this degree just a couple of years ago. What is the biggest threat out there? I know you mentioned communism and these the various alliances and whatnot. But, um, the, you know, as it says it's from North Korea, what was the real threat from them specifically? Is it their missile testing, these ballistic missiles? Or, or what is it, do you think? Uh, communism is the number two threat to America. The number one threat to America is America. The number one threat to America is our lack of leadership, a lack of understanding and a lack of unity in bringing forward uh, to have a nation that's strong. We have politicians and pundits who are pitting us against each other and they get their ratings and their reelection and we continue to fall behind. We have kids who are falling behind in school. We have businesses that are that were that were hemorrhaging to to countries like China. The IRA that just got signed, there are 70 percent of the of the vehicles. Um, for this tax credit, aren't, aren't American, like the 70% of vehicles aren't even eligible. So we're trading our energy independence our, our, on, for dependence on Chinese batteries. We are allowing, this administration is allowing uh, the, the Chinese to build their manufacturing and their middle class on the backs of ours. Mm. And so that's what's strengthening them. Mm. They are playing the long game. Yeah. And so we need to make sure that we're getting out of our own way that we are putting America first, that we are doing all the right things to make sure that we are strong long-term yep. because uh, uh, the, the, uh, our enemies are waiting <laughs> us out and they're letting us defeat ourselves. Got to clean house first, what we got to do. Yeah, John James, Republican nominee for the 10th Congressional District and also an Army veteran. John James, great to talk to you. Thanks so much. John Gibbs, a Trump-backed Republican, beat incumbent-prone impeachment congressman Peter Meyer in the primary for Michigan's 3rd District, which covers Muskegon, Grand Haven, into Kentwood on the west side of the state. John Gibbs introduces himself to the east side of the state on All Talk. Another race we had been watching is the Congressional 3rd District contest between the incumbent, Republican Peter Meyer, and the Trump-endorsed candidate, John Gibbs. John Gibbs pulled out the win, and it was a very close race, but the well-known moderate Republican Peter Meyer conceded the race shortly after. It was a clear indication that he had lost uh, that contest. And Kevin, John Gibbs becomes a strong candidate in that congressional district. 
Yeah, Tom. John Gibbs, he came into the race with little name recognition and nowhere near as much money as incumbent Peter Meyer, not even close. But he had two things going for him. Peter Meyer voted to impeach Donald Trump, and Donald Trump wanted to take Peter Meyer out. He endorses Gibbs, and Gibbs wins the primary. Now he's working to win the general election in November. And joining us now is Republican nominee for the 3rd Congressional District, John Gibbs. Good morning, sir. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate you coming on. Uh, the Trump endorsement, uh, a big help in the primary. Do you see it as a help or a hurdle uh, moving into the general election? Um, I see it as something that uh, people that support Trump will really respect. Um, and I think it's something positive. Uh, there are some people who, for whatever reason, uh, they're not as big of a fan as uh, of President Trump. And, um, you know, I get to reach those people also because I'm the one who's on the ballot. It's my name, not President Trump's. Um, as much as I love his endorsement, and I, I know that will have a big impact with uh, Trump supporters. I'm a big Trump supporter. Obviously, I worked in the administration for four years, but, you know, we can reach many different people with my background and my story and where God has brought me in my life. And also the fact that I'm endorsed by Dr. Ben Carson as well, who many people also love and appreciate. So I think we've got a very powerful um, way of uh, reaching out to all different kinds of folks in the district. Um, and this is going to be a close race. So as I say, we need every Republican, every Independent, and every Democrat to the right of Karl Marx. And I think we'll be able to get all those folks. Uh, we're all in Michigan, uh, but you're in West Michigan. What are the what is the most important issue uh, for your constituents in West Michigan? Uh, inflation uh, in the economy. Uh, people are having a very hard time hiring work. It's a very big problem. You can't find employees. Also, prices are going up like crazy. I was talking to the owner of a restaurant yesterday. Uh, he was saying that his uh, all of his input prices are going up. But he can't necessarily increase his menu items, uh, the price of his menu items, because people will stop coming. So our businesses are really getting squeezed quite badly. So we've got to really uh, have some uh, solutions to this, this inflation problem. Clearly, uh, your race uh, that you just went through in the primary, it really exemplified this division that does exist within the Republican Party of Michigan. Peter Myers, a very well-known name, representing the very more moderate, never-Trumper kind of faction within the GOP. But your candidacy, representing what someone says is a, is a more far-right faction, more conservative. What do you think the main differences are between these two factions within the Republican Party? Well, you know, I, I don't know that I would call myself uh, extremist or far right or whatever name that uh, uh, the media or some folks out there like, you know, uh, New York Times like to use. I, mean, I think uh, bringing down gas prices, bringing down inflation, getting wages higher, getting us out of recession, you know, having more respect across the international stage. I think those are kind of basic mainstream American positions, and those are my positions. Um, but I would say that this divide is there, just as you said, and it's been happening for many, many years, long before Trump came along. And it's kind of a divide between what one might call the base of the party and the, I guess, the establishments of the party. And the bulk of Republican voters around the country often feel that the party is not doing what the people want, but is only responding to the needs of those who can uh, afford to donate the most money. And uh, there, I think there is some truth to that. So I do think that there is a divide there for sure. And I think this is probably a process we need to go through. And it's a healthy process uh, that may take some years to work through. And I think it's not about Trump per se, although he was a guy smart enough to stand up and become a leader for what the bulk of the people wanted. I think we will see this uh, perhaps playing out even after Trump as well until we get this whole thing settled up. How do we get our political system to be more responsive to the needs of regular people? And that's on both sides. Democrats have the same issue going on as well, sure. although the dynamics look. Uh, so, yeah, this has been a long time coming, and I, and I think it will still continue to play itself out. And 
I would like to at least think that I, I want to represent the needs of the vast majority of the population. And, you know, I, I love business as well. You know, we want our businesses to do well, hire people, um, uh, and, and our big firms out there to do well also. So I'm, I'm for everybody who's all about making our country uh, stronger. So, yeah. yeah, this is a certain... I agree with you. I, I do think there is a gross mischaracterization in the media about uh, those who are supporting Trump or who are endorsed by Trump, including Joe Biden calling the MAGA movement fascism. Uh, I want to address this. Um, there's a congresswoman, Brenda Lawrence, here in the metro Detroit area. She resigned from office, being the only African-American representative in the Michigan delegation. And she lamented the fact that she says there will, there will likely be no other black members of Congress representing Michigan. But you're African-American and you now have an opportunity as one of three African-American candidates in congressional races here in the state. There's you, there's John James, and in the 13th District, there's Marvell Bivings, all Republicans, uh, no Democrats. Is this a shifting demographic, do you think, in the Republican Party? What's going on here? Well, I do think it's a very fascinating dynamic to look at, and uh, the statement uh, that Brenda Lawrence made is, is very incorrect. Uh, I do believe that John James and myself will be winning in November, God willing. Um, I, I like Bivens. I think he's a great dude. He's in a D-plus-47 district, so it may be tough to pull out. But it's fascinating because if they're really that concerned about black representation, then all the folks can go and vote for Bivens. Uh, and, you know, he's a, he's a black Republican. We'll see if they do that. Right. Um, if they don't, it will show that there's uh, much ado over nothing here. Uh, but, you know, I think, you know, why does someone have to be uh, – why, if I'm a black person, why do I have to vote for a black representative? Why can't I vote for whoever's best, regardless of what background they come from? Uh, that's kind of the way way I see it. And I, and I do, again, I do think that what uh, uh, Brenda Lawrence said was somewhat disingenuous, because if you give her a choice of a black Republican or a non-black Democrat, I, I guarantee you that uh, she would vote for the uh, Democrat. So um, I think a lot of it is just their talking points that they're using. Uh, but I think, you know, we should pick the best person, regardless of their background. Looking at uh, the governor's race between Tudor Dixon and Gretchen Whitmer, there is big money being spent uh, by the Whitmer campaign to attack Tudor Dixon on her stance on abortion. Uh, in fact, almost every commercial addresses that that I've seen so far. Uh, do you think that will be the same situation in your race? Do you think you will be attacked for your position on abortion? They could try to do that. I mean, they could try to, uh, you know, call me extreme or whatever, but for example, my opponent supports abortion all the way up to nine months. Less than 10% of Americans support that, and only six other countries in the world uh, support that position, including China, North Korea, and Vietnam, major human rights violators. So that's an extremist position that she's supporting. So, uh, you know, as much as they like to use that term against me, I think I'm justified in using that against what they're trying to promote. And I think Tudor has got to re uh, realize that, too, and she does. So, yeah, we know they're going to be spending a lot of money attacking. Um, in my primary, I was outspent 100 to 1 in outside money, and uh, it, it didn't work, thankfully. The people could not be bought because we had a very strong ground game. We were out there visiting everybody, every single city and township and in the, the district we went to. Uh, so I think we'll be doing uh, similar here, and we already are doing that. So, yeah, they'll, they'll pull out all kinds of attacks they can, um, and I think if we're smart about it, uh, it won't, uh, won't be able to take us down. Well, we wish you the very best, and we're glad you joined us on uh, All Talk this morning. John Gibbs, Republican nominee for the 3rd Congressional District. Mr. Gibbs, thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Republican Congresswoman Lisa McLean, running in the 9th District, which covers northern Macomb County up through the thumb, appeared on All Talk Friday morning to ring the alarm on Mexican drug cartels. The migrants say they believe President Biden has invited them here and effectively he has if they can just get across the Rio Grande or through a punishing desert trek or slip between the unfinished border wall segments in Yuma they're in 
and they will likely be here for life. What does that mean in the real world? Well, the former head of the Department of Homeland Security, uh, Chad Wolf, the former DHS chief, he says... As a result, the extremely violent Mexican drug cartels are now a much bigger threat than what liberals claim come from white nationalists. Under Biden, Kevin, DHS says right-wing groups are the largest security threat to America. That's what DHS says. Yeah, we see tens of thousands of people dying as a direct result from these open border policies. Yeah, Tom, we talk about the crisis at the border, the lack of interest in, that the Biden administration has in that crisis. But now former acting Homeland Security Secretary Chad Wolf, he's basically laid out a case uh, for impeaching his successor, saying Alejandro Mayorkas violated his duty duty to carry out the laws Congress wrote by exempting whole categories of illegal immigrants from the threat of enforcement action. Very interesting. Uh, Joining us now is Lisa McLean, Congresswoman from the 10th District. Good morning. How are you? Hey, I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. Do do you think Chad Wolf makes a a good case in in that uh, perhaps uh, Mayorkas uh, should be impeached? Absolutely. 100% no question. He's laid out the case beautifully, um, and quite frankly, we've been calling for this, right? Um, Our southern border is absolutely wide open, and what I think I'm frustrated with, uh, which is a lot of what the American people are frustrated with, is could you just start telling the truth and use some facts, right? Just because you say it doesn't make it true, right? Let's look at the facts, right? Drug overdoses in 2021 were 107,000. 70 of those, roughly 71,000, but we'll say 70,000 came from fentanyl, which where's fentanyl coming from? Our southern border. By comparison, if you take a look at the numbers from the Anti-Defamation League, right, which tracks the deaths deaths, um, due to domestic extremists, there's 29 fatalities in in 21. Let's just round that up to 30, 30 fatalities. Again, Horrible, right? But I'm going to ask a simple math question that I think I could ask um, maybe a kindergartner. Which is greater, 30 which, or 70? I think anyone that you ask that question will say 70 is greater than 30. It's kind of <laughs> simple. But what this administration does is it, it doesn't use facts to make its decisions, right? And that's where we need to get back to. Give the Amer- have a little faith in the American people and tell them the truth. What, why is the truth so harmful? I'll tell you why. It's because it doesn't fit their narrative. So is there anything that can be done about this right now? Or is the fact that Democrats have the White House, the Senate, and the House of Representatives, it, it, does that mean nothing can be done un- until after the midterms and only if Republicans are elected? Well, that's our greatest chance for success, because if you think anyone's going to bring my orcas up on impeachment charges and you think Nancy Pelosi is going to let that through the House floor, it's not happening. Um, but I, what I will tell you is when we take the House back, we have the ability to to haul him in and ask him some really tough questions and ask and ask him just the facts. And then perhaps, which I am in favor of. We need to get somebody different in there, somebody that will actually represent the American people, somebody that actually will put the American people first and look at the facts. And that's 
that's what we need to do. And if that leads to impeachment, which I, I, I think he's clearly uh, these are impeachable offenses. I think we move forward and we move forward in a swift fashion to protect the American people. Basic job for him is to enforce the laws uh, regarding Homeland Security that Congress writes. He admits he doesn't do it. He says crossing the border illegally is not enough nowadays to remove you from the country that you just broke into. So would you personally, based on that alone, would you consider that an impeachment, uh, um, uh, an impeachment worthy offense? Yes. In short answer, yes. We have three equal, co-equal branches of government. And we have got to start. We have a, we, we have a constitution that has worked pretty well for us for, for over 250 years. You're breaking the law. You took an oath to uphold the constitution. You need to do that. To uphold the law, you need to do that. But the problem with this administration is they're so bold and they're so brazen, they'll even say, hey, I, I know this is against the Constitution, but I'm going to do it anyway. We saw Biden do it. We see it. We see Mayorkas do it. This is standard operating procedure. And when you don't have the rule of law, you're going to get anarchy. And that's what you're seeing right now. That's why crime is up. That's why fentanyl is up. That's why this country is in a mess. Crime is up, yeah, and and you mentioned fentanyl is a huge, huge issue, as you touched on the numbers there. Why does Alejandro Mayorkas, why does he say white nationalism is the greatest threat to the homeland? I mean, can you compare and contrast the crimes and the terror threat from white supremacists or domestic terrorists? Compare that to the Mexican drug cartels and the flood of immigrants. Right, 30 Right. I'm rounding up 30. Now, that's terrible. I'm not saying I'm, I'm not saying I, 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 I condone that. But 30, 30. What's uh, how, how many murders happen in Detroit um, I, 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 in a year? I, I would guess it's more than I would guess it's more than 30. Right. But there again, this is the problem with this administration. If they say something they're in, if they believe it's true. You know, and I, I joke about this all the time. Just because I say I'm a six foot two blonde supermodel doesn't mean that I am. <laughs> I mean, you have to actually at some point in time tell the truth and look at the facts. And and again, why don't we tell the American people the truth? Why why do we have to lie to them? Mm. Well, it's a crisis. If you just look at the fentanyl issue alone, more than a hundred thousand or so overdose deaths, 90% of that likely from fentanyl coming over the border. Uh, We appreciate your perspective on this, Congresswoman Lisa McLean joining us. Thank you, Congresswoman. Appreciate it. Have a great weekend. You do the same. Thanks. Thanks. Have a good one. 800